Some days are terrible. You wish that you were dead, and some days are magical, like grape banana bread. Someday we'll be friends with the voices in our heads. The voices in our heads. Oh, hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to the voices in our heads. I'm your host, comedian. The voice in your head, Christina Marie Hutchinson. Oh. <clears throat> hey, what a week, huh? I, I, I was so excited to see Georgia take control of the United States Senate. And that was historic for Georgia. Hats off to Latasha Brown and Stacey Abrams and all the people who helped get your voices in Georgia heard it was so exciting oh my god it was so fucking exciting so I was like I knew I knew you guys could do it and then I was watching CNN as they were doing the ceremonial counting of the electoral college votes and the night before I'm not saying I'm psychic but like I'm kind of psychic I would you know what no I would say I'm psychic but there were articles about this shit so the, peop- the terrorists who stormed the Capitol were like, hey, we're going to storm the Capitol tomorrow with guns. And everyone's like, nah. But for whatever reason, Tuesday night, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't fucking sleep. And I'd not, I'd, I'd, I, my night routine is such that the last two hours are dedicated solely to winding down. I'm talking lights off. I'm talking candles. I'm talking this. Are you healed yet? I mean, I do that. All my woo-woo shit. And then I couldn't sleep. I was in bed. I'm like, what the fuck? I took a Unisom, which is like a sleep, like a Tylenol PM kind of, but no Tylenol in it. That always knocks me out. And I was wide awake. And I was like, what the fuck? And I was like, there's going to... I just felt like something bad was going to happen the next day on Wednesday. And there was news. The, people were talking about it. So I'm not saying I'm psychic, but like I'm kind of saying I'm psychic. I'm like, fuck you. And I was watching them count the electoral votes, and then Mitch McConnell delivered a speech. I was like, guys, Trump lost, okay? I'm not happy about it, but he lost. And I was like, oh, shit, Mitch, go ahead. Go ahead, Mitch, okay. There we go. And then they took a break because Arizona was like, Trump won. So they took a break to debate for two hours even though they they knew they weren't going to go anywhere because they're just pledging allegiance to to a piece of shit, racist, sexist, walking open wound that's gushing out everywhere with pus and blood. Does he have tapes of them getting pissed on or some shit? Why are they loyal to him? It's I, here's what I think. Vlad Vladdy Poots has a tape of Trump getting peed on. I'm like, guys, come on, it's twenty it's twenty twenty one. Can we be open with our kinks? Who gives a shit? Something. He's got tape of Trump doing something, taking something in the b-hole. Maybe getting peed on in the b-hole. Is that a thing that can happen? I'm sure it is. And then Trump's got tapes of all those Republicans who said, we, we don't think the Electoral College is like... Look, the Electoral College is a fucking racist-ass institution. You can look it up. You should question everything I say, by the way. Do your own research. Take everything anyone says to you with a grain of salt. But Jesus Christ, if you look into the Electoral College, they just want to suppress the black vote. What other democracy has an Electoral College? Oh, it's just America. Cool. 
Anyway, I saw this shit unfold live, the rioting of the Capitol. Because all of a sudden, they went, they went to recess so they can Arizona can be like, wee, wee. and then you just see fucking bats beating in the glass of the Capitol. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Is anybody else seeing this? I was alone in my home. And I was like, I was obviously watching the news. I'm like, wait a second. Wait a sec. Wait, wait, wait. That's like not, that's like a big, hmm. And then you saw the police, the Capitol Police, some of them were very brave and led them away from the Senate people. But like other ones were like taking selfies with these motherfuckers and opening the gates saying, come on in. That's some white privilege shit, y'all. And I know you know this, but boy, if you're listening and you don't know this, you got to put turn this podcast off is the only instance where I'll ever tell you to stop playing the episode because I really just want you to listen to the whole thing. But if you really think that white privilege is not a thing, turn this fucking podcast off and go do some research, okay? And don't do it on Fox. I was watching them hold the hands of the people letting them down the steps and I'm like they just broke into government property are we in upside down land it was so fucking oh my god what a stain what a stain oh. and it's just you know I'm work we're work I'm working on all this childhood shit I'm not talking to my parents still and, and I'm realizing oh every fucking day that I don't smoke weed I realize another thing and I'm like god damn it but it's good it's good it just hurts it fucking hurts <laughs> And my gongs and rocks, they don't do nothing for that pain, y'all. Gotta just get through my goddamn self. But I'm like, you know, I'm with this childhood shit and, I'm, and, and, and realizing that part of the thing, the thing that my parents do and the thing that I, that I guess you could say triggers me because I can't even find words to speak when I'm either talking to a person that does this or, uh, you know, I'm watching it unfold on the news saying some some fucking asshole saying that white privilege doesn't exist you fucking piece of shit yes it does i my parents denied my reality and my existence enough times that i remember it <laughs> and 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 saying pointing to a flower that is red and telling me that it's fucking green that the petals are green it's not it's red I can't, people denying the truth is, 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 oh my God, it pisses me off. And we're going to talk, oh, don't worry, boo-boos, we're going to talk all about denial today. Pete, dig your wounds out of that well walker is going to, the word, the chapter I'm reading today, I'm trying, I'm going to try to read two. Who cares? You could fucking, if you don't want to listen to more than an hour, you just stop it. I don't care. But I want to get to two chapters today because these two chapters are really good compliments of each other. And they're all about denial. And I'm watching these fucking racist, terrorist, stupid pieces of shit. And I go, well, I know exactly how they were treated when they were kids. Because that's where it starts. There's so many shitty people in the world. And it really breaks my heart that the, that the obnoxious, hateful people are the loudest. I hate that, man. I hate that, man. I want to punch you, man. And then I'm coming one of you, man. I don't want that. Oh, I'm healed. Okay, that's fine. I just healed myself, guys. But there is a chunk of white people, man, that is just truly dedicated to destroying any semblance of peace in another person. You guys gotta we, you can work on yourselves. 
work on yourself. So you got to fix it. Ooh, was daddy a bully to you? And now you're a narcissistic, raging piece of shit who is cruel to anybody you come across? Fix it. Got to fix it. Pieces of shit. (laughs) So angry. Like, if all you have to be proud of is that you're white, you got to get a hobby. Do something. Take on a new skill that you think would be fun. Seriously. Because I am willing to bet that your fight or flight response was activated since you were an itty bitty little baby. You don't realize it and it has you doing shit like taking orders from a maniac. A piece of shit. God, guys, if he goes to jail and they show footage of him in cuffs, I'm going to jerk off to that for the rest of my fucking life. Yeah, you heard me. Oh, jerk off to that so hard. I guess I should say not jerk off because I don't have a dick. Whatever, I'll say what I want. But, you know, there's a lot of... Oh, God. This is a lot. It's a lot. I, I, woohoo! It's a lot. Congrats on not killing yourselves, guys. Something I want to read is Michelle Obama. Just, I mean, when you think about Michelle Obama and you're like, oh, God. The speeches that she has had throughout her career and will continue to have soothe my soul she hugs my soul when she talks and then you think of melania and you're like Ugh. we got to stop bullying online yeah well how about you start with the guy you're fucking if you really care about not bullying dumbass dumb fucking dumbass just a bunch of fucking fucking dumbasses they should make a bop it you know remember bop it if you don't remember, it's this, it's this little game you play as a kid. It's a one-person game. And it's a little device. It looks like a, it's a plastic-colored... Um, it looks like, you know, an instrument, like a zany instrument. And there's buttons on it, and there's things you pull and things you twist. And when you play it, it goes, bop it, twist it, shake it. And you do the things that it says, and then it goes faster, and it goes out of order. They should make a bop it for angry white supremacists to just get out all their rage on the bop it. It'll say, like, shoot it. Mm, mm, mm. Fuck it. Mm, mm, mm. Tell it to go back to its country. Mm, mm, mm. Punch it. Mm. Fuck it again. Mm. Tell it to get off your lawn. I want to make a bop it for white supremacists. And you could channel all, and it'll come with a punching bag. Just you, you're, the rage, when you are whole, when you feel whole and you truly love yourself, which is possible for everyone, spoiler alert. You have no room. You have no desire to hate. You don't have energy to hate. So I'm watching these stupid ass motherfuckers just spew, just shit and puke and spit all of the grossness that's inside of them onto the Capitol and to other people. And it's just like they need to bop it for white supremacists. I'm going to read this post that Michelle Obama put up. This fucking angel. I woke up yesterday elated by the news of Reverend Raphael Warnick's election victory. He'll be Georgia's first black senator. And I was heartened by the idea that the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, the home parish of Dr. King and a spiritual organization, uh, spiritual and organizational hub during the civil rights movement would be representing his state in the United States Senate. In just a few hours, though, my heart had fallen harder and faster than I can remember. Like all of you, I watched as a gang, organized, violent, and mad they'd lost an election, 
laid siege to the United States Capitol. They set up gallows. <sighs> they did do that. They proudly waved the traitorous flag of the Confederacy through the halls. Houston, you're not going to want to hear this, but you lost the Civil War. Your flag should just say, loser! They uh, desecrated the center of American government. And once authorities finally gained control of the situation, these rioters and gang members were led out of the building, not in handcuffs, but free to carry on with their days. The day was a fulfillment of the wishes of an infantile and unpatriotic president who can't handle the truth of his own failures. Goddamn right, bitch. The wreckage lays at the feet of a party and, me- and media apparatus that gleefully cheered him on, knowing full well the possibility of quant- consequences like these. It all left me with so many questions, questions about the future, questions about security, extremism, propaganda, and more. But there's one question I just can't shake. What if these rioters had looked like the folks who go to Ebenezer Baptist Church every Sunday? What would have been different? I think we all know the answer. This summer's Black Lives Matter protests were an overwhelmingly peaceful event. Yeah, they were. Our nation's largest demonstrations ever, bringing together people of every race and class and encouraging millions to reexamine their own assumptions and behavior. And yet, in city after city, day after day, we saw peaceful protesters met with brute force. We saw cracked skulls and mass arrests, law enforcement pepper spraying its way through a peaceful demonstration for a presidential photo op. And he didn't even hold the Bible the right way. I bet he never read it. And for those who call others unpatriotic for simply taking a knee in a silent protest, Colin Kaepernick, he's a hero. For those who wonder why we need to be reminded that black lives matter at all. Because they fucking do, you pieces of shit. Yesterday made it painfully clear that certain Americans are, in fact, allowed to denigrate the flag and symbols of our nation. They've just got to look the right way. What do all these folks have to say now? Seeing the gulf between the responses to yesterday's riot and this summer's peaceful protests and the larger movement for racial justice is so painful. It hurts. And I cannot think about moving on or turning the page until we reckon with the reality of what we saw yesterday. True progress will be possible only once we acknowledge that this disconnect exists. Because it does. And take steps to repair it. And that also means coming to grips with the reality that millions voted for a man so obviously willing to burn our democracy down for his own ego. Childhood trauma. I hurt for this country and I wish I had all the solutions to make things better. (sighs) Me too, girl. I wish I had the confidence that people who know better will act like it for more than a news cycle or two. All I know is that now is a time for true patriotism. Now is the time for those who voted for this president to see the reality of what they've supported and publicly and forcefully rebuke him and the actions of that mob. Now is the time for Silicon Valley companies to stop enabling this monstrous behavior. And they did. Ooh, ooh. P.S. If you're a private company, you could kick anybody off and go even further than any have already have already by permanently banning this man from their platforms and putting in place policies to prevent their technology from being used by the nation's leaders to fuel insurrection. And if we have any hope of improving this nation, now is the time for swift and serious consequences for the failure of leadership that led to yesterday's shame. Thankfully, even in the darkness, there are glimmers of hope. It's something I imagine Reverend Warnock has preached about before, and I'm still heartened beyond belief that he's headed to Washington. I'm glad his fellow Georgian, John Ossoff, 
is two, and that together they'll help give control of Congress back to the only party that's shown that it can put our democracy above its own short-term political fortunes. I pray that every American, especially those who disagree with them, will give our new Congress, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris, the chance to lead us in a better direction. But make no mistake, the work of putting America back together, of truly repairing what is broken, isn't the work of any individual politician or political party. It's up to each of us to do our part, to reach out, to listen, and to hold tight to the truth and values that have always led this country forward. It will be an uncomfortable, sometimes painful process. That's okay. I'm used to that. But if we enter it in, into it with an honest and unwavering love of our country, then maybe we can finally start to heal. I mean, that healed me. You know, it's just these these mental. Mental illness, man. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. But we can fix it. You gotta fix it. You gotta fix it. But the only person that can fix it is fucking you. So that's one of the many reasons why I, I, I'm really excited to do a deep dive into this book and be very honest about what's happening in my life in, in relation to my parents because... If I heal myself and you get inspired to heal yourself and then your friends heal your themselves because they're inspired. We all this is how it happens. This is how we make the world a better place, guys. Gotta fucking fix it. And you gotta have faith. You gotta keep a vision of a better world close to your heart. Cause some the bad people are often the loudest and it's they're in so much pain from childhood. That's correct. And when you listen to me, when you and we all know these two types of people. When you get fucked up in childhood, if your parent is neglectful, if your parent is abusive, if your parents screamed at each other, if your parents beat each other, if you were raped, if you were molested, if you were subject to starvation or constantly ridiculed on your appearance. When that shit happens to you, you go one of two ways. You either become an extremely empathetic person and you say, I will never treat anybody the way that I was treated. Even if you don't even realize the way you were treated at first, because denial, it's potent. Or you become a raging piece of shit who just wants to feel something. So you invoke and incite violence in others and those uh, those around you. And you're just a piece of shit. And you gotta fix it. Fix it. You gotta fucking fix it. These fucking idiots. They're out here on video. I mean, come on. You're so... Oh, you're stupid. And look, I understand that it's weird to have a president say, let's take him by force. That's a That's crazy. But and you know when a president is saying that, a president, shit's going to happen. And the dumber you are, the easier it is to rile you up, man. Look, it's easy, it's easy to rile me up with certain things. So I'm not saying that if you get riled up, you're dumb. What I'm saying is you got to have control of your fucking emotions. That's why meditating is one of the best things you can do for yourself. I'm telling you. All those terrorists that stormed the Capitol, you think they ever meditated a day in their goddamn life? No. They probably went to fucking church where the pastor told them that they were born pieces of shit and that they're probably going to die pieces of shit and that God hates them all the time. And they're like, well, fuck this, I guess. I'm just going to be a piece of shit. 
That's what happens. That's what happens. God, speaking of CNN, I was watching, when I watch CNN, there's commercials. And I know I can get the Hulu without commercials, but you know what? I don't want to now because these commercials is fucking entertaining. There's a Nugenics commercial. Nugenics, total pills. And it's basically like, <laughs> you want to be more of a man? Do you want a wolf cock? Nugenics. And it's like all these white guys with white rimmed sunglasses with sunburns on their foreheads and buzz cuts. And at the end of the commercial, at the end of the commercial, the narrator goes, and she'll like it too. Just say it. Just say it. Just say your dick will finally be hard enough, long enough to fuck her the way she wants. You know, I just feel like advertisers are really missing out on this thing called honesty and directness because just say it. Just say it. Ugh. What do we do, guys? Are you okay? How you doing? You good? Uh, I'm not going to do Fuckboy Friday this week because I can't. I can't. I can't look at any more. I can't read the words of any more angry men. I can't. Woo! Oh, I will tell you about. Oh, shit. Did he block me? Some girl messaged me about. Wait, well, yeah. Bruce? I don't know how to. The last name is M E J I A. Bruce May. Maya? Mayha is what I, I don't know. He's a pastor of First Works Baptist Church in El Monte, California. And in his bio, it says he's unapologetic about preaching the Bible. And then he says, don't die. So actually, we, we will do Fuckboy Theater, but you're, I'm not going to do a voice. You're just going to hear him say it. Let's see. What does he have to say? And if you look on his Instagram, now this is not a call to harass him, okay? Because let me tell you something. When you harass somebody that has hateful views, you think that's going to help? It's not. Houston, it's not. It'll backfire. But I, I don't have it in me right now to be... I don't even know how you fix these fucking people. But this guy has a wife and a daughter and two sons. Yeah. And I followed him and because uh, somebody messaged me about it. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? And she was she lives in this town. And she's like, this guy's ruining our town. And I was like, huh? And then I was reading what he had to say. Let's see what he has to say about women. Do you think he likes them? Guess. Just guess. You can eliminate that. And much of adultery that takes place in marriage is when a woman is working out in the world. It happens all the time. Why? Because women are weak. I'm not downplaying them. I'm not degrading Oh, you're not? Okay. It's fact. It's in the Bible. That's why my daughter will never work. Ever. I mean, she'll work at the house, but she's never going to work a secular job. Over my dead body. Would I ever allow my daughter to work a secular job? Why? Because my daughter's going to be weak. She's a woman. She's weak. Now, let me tell you something. Bruce. Good old Brucey Bruce. You piece of shit. She emailed me. She messaged this a girl DM me and was like, he's ruining our town. And oh, and there's um, there's a March shit. There's a March. I'll post it on my Instagram because uh. Where the fuck did this girl's message? Where did it go? Where did I put it? Christina, you just... Come on. There's a march that's going to be in front of the church on this Friday. But I'm like, okay. So freedom of speech is a thing, right? And I knew we've talked... Uh, Corinne and I have talked to Nadine Strassen, who's the first female president of the American Civil Liter- Liberties Union. And she's what who penned my Beyonce tattoo. Um, she has a book called Hate. Why we should... Uh, it's called hate and it's about free speech and i looked up the chapter of like because i remember her saying the only speech that is not protected under the law of the government 
is inciting violence. And I was like watching the shit unfold on CNN. And I was like, you know what? You know what? I think that's inciting violence. And I looked it up in the book and I emailed the dean because I was like, because I didn't want to not look it up before I emailed her. And I was like, you cited this case in this case. And I was looking at what Trump said. And that's inciting violence, right? Like that's that's an, uh, that's illegal. And she goes, oh, she goes, oh, Christina, you're very smart. Yes, it is. And I was like, thank you, Nadine. I need an older woman to love me because I don't have my mom right now. And it's I'm starving for love. And she was like, OK, well, see you later. I'm like, oh, yeah, I should probably have said that part, huh? That didn't happen. But yeah, Bruce, Brucey Bruce thinks women are weak. You do? Oh, Brucey, I, my hands are so little. Can you help me pick up this paper clip? I can't pick it up, Brucey. Brucey. You know, it would be funny, actually, if a bunch of women uh, wore diapers and like a baby outfit, but not a sexy one. Don't give them that. And then they showed up in front of his church and they just shit on the lawn. That'd be really funny. Uh, do not, do not, please don't. Uh, I don't want to be Trump and be like, get him. Because that's not, don't, don't do that. You know, everything he said in that video that I just played, technically he can say. He has the right to that opinion. And I support freedom of speech. I just also think he's a raging piece of shit. He has a wife who looks like she can't talk when they're in the house. I feel like she gets shushed a lot. And he has a daughter, clearly, you heard him talk about, she's never going to work. That daughter's never going to be able to work. And you know, that's how you gain some fake fucking form of power. Because Brucey Bruce, Bruce Meha, if that's how you say it, I'm sorry if I'm not saying it right. But you know what? I never want to pronounce anyone's name wrong, but I forgot to look it up before I pressed the record. You can, you can be... I guarantee you, Brucey Bruce did not come out of his mother's vagina going, women are weak. Someone taught him that. You think it was his dad? Because I feel like maybe it was his dad. Get out your treasure maps, y'all. We're going to solve a mystery. And it's like, God, you look at his Instagram. And you see his family. He looks very happy with his family. Well, he likes his sons more. That's very clear. Got a great head of hair. That's unfortunate. <clears throat> yeah, his wife looks like she's not allowed to talk that much. And that sucks. Um, but yeah, I think there's going to be a march. Um, you know what? I'll find the thing and I'll put it on the resource section of my website, ChristineHutchinson.com. And I'll remind you because I have a very special announcement at the very, very end of this episode. Um, so I'll re-remind you to, to go look uh, at where that protest is. And it's peaceful. Jesus Christ. Please. Peaceful. No but I think because he thinks women are weak, you should show up in a diaper and like a ba- like some type of baby outfit and then with a bonnet maybe and like a pacifier and then go, wah, wah, Brucey, I can't tie my shoe. Can you do it? And then just shit on the lawn of the church. That's kind of funny. And I know he'll not, he's not going to pick it up because somebody else will probably have to pick it up because, you know, I don't imagine he does the church's lawn grooming. But that's kind of funny. Can you shit on... A lawn is that illegal to shit? Well, look that up first. <laughs> God, I'm the I'm, I'm just like Trump, except I'm telling you to poop on a misogynist lawn, so no violence, right? Well, you know it would be the best is if men if men showed up at this protest, because let me tell you something, guys and women know this. 
if a man is a misogynist and he has views such as that, the last thing he wants to hear are words from a woman. They won't affect him. It will be wasted energy. But I think something that could sway him or make him rethink or make him ponder, even just for a second, is a man going, yeah, bro, fuck you. I hope his wife's okay. Man. Oh, God. But yeah, I'm, uh, all these people, these racists, these sexists, all these people, they didn't come out of the room going, I hate black people. They were taught that. And then I and I guarantee you their childhood was not a place of love and acceptance and joy. Guarantee. So they take these hateful ideas about other people and they just lean the fuck in. And you know what you got to do? You got to fix it. You fucking idiots. You got to fix it. Just fix it. Also, a friendly reminder to make sure, you know, make sure you turn your notifications off at some point in your day and not look at the news. Just go, go take a walk without your phone. At, le- at least once a day, even if it's five minutes, because <laughs> it's way too easy to get yourself in a tornado of hell. OK, let's talk. Let's read this book, man. This is uh, some excerpts from chapter two. Forgiveness as denial. Oh, shit. I'm quaking in my boots already. God damn it. I'm going to try to be read it better at reading out loud this time. Uh, wait, hold on. Oh, I'm going to be better. I got healed. Sick. When we choose forgiveness by swallowing our anger about parental injustice, we slip into the psychic fog of denial. Denial is a broad term used by recovery therapists to describe the various defenses we use to numb ourselves to ongoing and unchallengeable hurtfulness. I'm using the term denial here somewhat differently than the way it is used in the drug and alcohol recovery movement. There, denial often implies a shameful, blameworthy, conscious process used by substance abusers to ignore the blatantly destructive effects of their addiction. Well, I know about that one, too. (laughs) Cool. Do I win? Um, No, it's not a game. Okay. Denial is a psychic survival mechanism that arises unconsciously and automatically in continuously abused and neglected children. Guys, the automatically part and the unconsciously part cannot stress that enough. Okay. You're not you're not sitting there at five years old going, wait a second. So daddy hits me and then he also hits mommy. I think it's better if I block that out. You don't have that ability, but your brain is kind of a brilliant thing when you're a kid. And you, we are all wired to survive, okay? We're wired to survive. Wish we were wired to also thrive, but nope, <laughs> just survive. I mean, we can thrive. We all can thrive, but that's not in our wiring. You know, we can do it, but like <laughs> survival is the most important thing. So when these things happen and you slip into denial, that's something that you're not choosing to do. That's helping your survival. It's aiding your survival, If children are not held as babies, they die, okay? They can get all the food, all the changing, all the clothes they need. If they are not held, if they don't experience human touch, they will die, okay? So, of course, it makes a lot of sense that a child needs to feel loved by the parents. And if the parents aren't loving, the child's got to make it the fuck up. Children need to idealize at least one parent to maintain their enthusiasm for life. I always thought that was very interesting. Denial allows them to maintain the illusion of being loved regardless of how untrue that is. So great is the need that they automatically banish from their awareness all manner of parental disregard, injustice, and hostility, especially in the idolized parent. I guess I idolized my mom, yeah, because she was the one that was home. My dad wasn't home a lot. 
And when he was home, he locked himself in his office. And I was like, well, cool. So no one's going to help me or ask me how I feel. All right. That's that's fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'll fix it when I'm 32. It's cool. <laughs> Denial protects abused children from the overwhelming, undigestible reality that their parents are not their allies. Many of us relied on denial to save our sanity and sometimes our lives in childhood. We were too fragile and dependent. That's how Bruce views all women now. Huh? Interesting. To feel the overwhelming pain and disappointment we experienced in the hands of our parents. For many of us, gross unfairness was daily and ongoing, endless and impossible to challenge or change. Because when you're a little kid and you say, hey, mom, that's kind of fucked up. They're like, what'd you fucking say to me? And you're like, oh, okay, I'm not supposed to talk. OK. And then you grow up and you're like, am I not supposed to protest when I'm getting cheated like shit? Oh, yeah, because that's what I've been doing my whole life. And, you know, I'm still alive. So maybe that keeps me alive more or something. So then you date somebody who's a piece of shit. And they're like, yeah, well, whatever. He's he's nice when we're alone. And it's just us every once in a while. And all your friends are like, are you OK? And you're like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. So I can spiral really quick. When no foreseeable relief and no one to to whom we could appeal to for protection. What choice did we have but to go numb? Denial is truly a matter of life and death for some children. Those who cannot numb themselves and discount their perceptions of protracted parental viciousness are susceptible to mental illness, early drug abuse, and suicide. Some are prone to fatal accidents. He has accidents in quotes. Like, so suicide, huh? Maybe you're more reckless. And some develop a death wish that destroys their ability to fight off illness. Some children, of course, may come to tragic ends for reasons other than dysfunctional parenting. But then he doesn't elaborate on that. So I'm like, well, what, do you, what did you mean? Is that another book? Do I got to read another book? Survivors who are still in denial about the dysfunctionality of their families should not be blamed or shamed. Well, God damn it. Thank you, Daddy Walker, for saying that. Because you really do get hard. <sighs> so many people in my life, including all the therapists I've ever had, have always commented on how hard I am on myself. But I'm like, well, if I'm not hard on myself, then I'm a stupid piece of shit and I should just die. And they're like, no, that's not that's not true. I'm like, what do you mean? It's my credo. It's my manifesto. <sighs> the blinders of denial had to be used for many years. Many of us have become habituated to them. And I know many survivors of savage abuse who honestly believe their parents took good care of them. How much harder, then, is it for those who only suffered emotional neglect to understand how seriously they were deprived? Whew! I mean, damn it. Every time I read that one, I'm like, God damn, Daddy Walker, just punch me in the guts. Because we think, well, I wasn't beaten or I wasn't raped. Guys, the bar's got to be higher than that. You know what I mean? We got to set a bar higher than getting the shit kicked out of us or getting molested. Okay? Because emotional neglect is fucking... It's savage, man. It's savage, man. Ooh, are you healed? Yeah, you are. Shut up. Denial is often even harder to dissolve than it is to recognize. Oh, man, we are under under uh, we are understandably reluctant to look beyond our denial into the pain it masks because we were humiliated for revealing our hurt in childhood. Oh, God, here it goes. Here's the tears. How <laughs> how can we believe that it is safe to express our painful feelings now when all around us in real life and on television, we see others being ridiculed for emotional expressiveness? Yeah. Good question. Fuck all y'all. That's a great question. 
All too many of us have been wounded by variations of the threat. Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. (gasps) When I read that, y'all, oh, I got triggered to this. Oh, my God. My dad said the fucked up doll oh, he said such a I, I don't even want to repeat it it was so fucked up I, it haunts me to this day maybe i'll repeat it one day i don't feel like it the fact that many of us mimic this abusive statement as if it is an amusing cliche accentuates the pervasiveness of our denial when we do not challenge denial we remain numbly imprisoned in old pain blindly indifferent to the wounds and losses of our childhood Memor- mesmerized by the outmoded illusion that we all had happy childhoods We live our lives half-heartedly in an emotional, anesthetized condition. As distinguished childhood expert Bruno Bettelheim states, many childhood experiences have become, of necessity, deeply buried in the unconscious during the process of developing one's adult personality. This separation or distancing from one's childhood is no longer needed when the adult personality is fully and securely formed. But by then, the distancing has, for most people, become a part of that very personality. Separation from one's childhood is temporary, temporarily necessary, but if it is permanently maintained, it deprives us of inner experiences, which, when restored to us, can keep us young in spirit and also permit greater closeness to our children. And our friends, if we don't have kids, and our dog. You don't always have to have kids. Yeah. So it basically becomes your... And I'm looking at all these people storming the Capitol, I'm like... Someone's in denial. Trump, you could say he's in a little bit of the denial. Yeah. He eats it for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks in between all the meals. And you know he gets up at 3 a.m. and raids the fridge and eats some more denial. Fortunately, thank God, fortunately, we no longer require the service of denial. We are no longer dependent on our parents. We're not. They cannot punish us for acknowledging and expressing our painful feelings about the past. I mean, one could say that they emotionally could. But also, that's the thing I had to remember before I blocked my parents. I'm like, I'm a grown-ass woman. 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 And I'm like, they can't punish me. But I felt so like, oh my God, just a prisoner to their fucking feelings. It is time to challenge our denial. Woohoo! Let's do it. It is time to remove the cognitive straitjacket of false forgiveness that restricts our emotional circulation. God, he's a good writer. We must grieve to extricate ourselves from the swamp of anxiety and depression that seeps up. Hold on, I'm turning the page. That seeps up our unresolved, unconscious pain. The freedom to set sail into the wondrous ocean of unencumbered adulthood is ours when we fully remember, grieve, and work through the suffering Our parents caused us. Perhaps we can take inspiration from renowned psychoanalyst Alice Miller. Quote, it is like a miracle each time to see how much individuality has survived behind such denial and self-alienation and can reappear as the work of mornings brings freedom. Oh, as the work of mourning brings freedom. So basically what she's saying is grieving this, remembering it and grieving it. You kind of like then you don't get affected by it because that's the thing i don't want to talk about this shit for the rest of my life i feel like i'm a ghost because i'm just living in my old home in my in my head i'm like bitch you're in your home that you worked very hard to to make a beautiful peaceful place and you earned that shit bitch thanks bitch you're welcome bitch love you bitch love you denial masks self-abuse 
We, if we do not awaken from denial, we may never realize that we frequently treat ourselves as harshly as our parents did. Uh, yeah, I know. Children learn by imitation, and adult children of dysfunctional families undergo much unnecessary suffering from learned self-abuse and neglect. I caught myself in learned self-abuse for the umpteenth time earlier this month. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I was in a very relaxed mood preparing my lunch as I listened to my favorite music. I was luxuriating in the smells and textures of the spices I had just cut up and ground when I started to trim the fat off a small piece of steak. Suddenly, I noticed my leisurely pace becoming greatly accelerated. Much to my dismay, I realized I was tearing around the kitchen like a chef who might be fired for being tardy with the boss's dinner. Fortunately, I had learned enough from my recovery work to stop and focus inward to discern what was going on. And also meditating will help you do that. Because here's the thing, guys. You don't, it's not just a cure-all and then you're cured forever for the rest of your life. Shit will pop back up. It will pop back up into your life. But noticing it and not reacting to it, oh, what a gift. I immediately noticed that I felt highly anxious, impatient, and irritable, and that my stomach was contracted in a huge knot. The music had faded almost inaudibly into the background. My appetite had vanished, and I could barely wait to finish cooking my meal. All at once, a list of unimportant tasks seemed to be screaming, like a tantruming baby for my immediate attention. Oh, so he's getting flustered. Jesus Christ, he describes exactly how I get. It could be peaceful all of a sudden, and then you're like, well, I have so much to do and no time to do it. And then you're just freaking out. And you're like, I guess I'll smoke a cigarette. And then you come inside, and you're like, I guess I'll take a nap. And then you didn't do any of the shit you had to do, and now you're more stressed out. Mm-mm-mm. It's fun, right? It's fun. Ooh, I just got healed. As I turned in further to my inner experience, I noticed that my inner self-talk was terribly hostile. Suddenly, it dawned on me that the act of trimming off the fat of the steak had triggered in me an emotional flashback. Under the influence of this flashback, I was re-experiencing the awful fear my father of my father angrily going off at me at the dinner table. Further scrutiny led me to see that I had joined forces with him and was stuck in an internal storm of berating myself. I was barking at myself with the litany of criticisms he assaulted me with at almost every family meal. Barely on the threshold of awareness, I recoiled at the echo of a diatribe I had heard so often from him. Quote, who the hell do you think you are being so fussy? You'll eat that fat or I'll make you eat it. You always have to be so difficult. Why can't you be like everyone else? If you don't stop messing with the meat, I'll knock the living daylights out of you. Well, that's fucking mean, huh? Can't say I haven't heard similar things at one point in my life. Even worse than this reiteration of his bullying speech was the terrible fear and anxiety re-triggered by these words. Because when you experience a trigger, guys, you're basically, your brain does not know the difference. It thinks you're reliving the same exact moment. And if you're shame spiraling about being triggered, if you're like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? It's only going to make it worse. So try and catch yourself if you're being an asshole to you in your head in a matter of seconds the harmless violation of an unfair childhood rule one that had no external source of enforcement for over 30 years moved me from enjoying myself to hating myself so thoroughly that i couldn't get away from me fast enough god damn fortunately i was able to challenge this process because of the recovery work i've done regarding this issue see chapter seven we'll get there don't you worry i reversed it by angrily renouncing my father's ludicrous rule about meat fat and by moving into affirming positive self-talk as my anger brought this learned self-abuse to a halt 
I felt a great wave of grief come up in me for the a myriad times I hurt myself by parroting he, his memorized condemnations. Now that is a big one, man. When you, when you, okay, so it's like you recognize that shit wasn't the best in your childhood or you didn't get what you needed, right? And that's an uncomfortable thing because when you idolize a parent, you're like, well, they're either good or bad and they can't be bad, so that means they're good. And a lot of times your criticism, you'll get down on yourself and be like, well, why am I criticizing somebody who was good and did their best? And then you remember certain things that happened and you're like, oh, that was that's some fucked up shit you just said, huh? They said some fucked up shit to me. But grieving for your child self oh those tears is thick motherfuckers those tears is thick i think back to all the times that my innocence was taken away from me because of how cruel when my mom would brush my hair she took her anger out on my hair and she just fucking jerked the brush through my hair no she raised me she knew my hair was tangly because it was curly and she would take her anger out on my scalp with the brush and at, oh my god and if i cried she would yell at me yo fuck that shit and i so when i sometimes when i'll cry i'll think of like this month because i've been sober you know doing that whole thing i i just get so sad for my inner for the little girl the little little five-year-old christina it was just such a sweet such a beautiful pure sweet soul getting her fucking scalp pulled back and trying not to cry because I didn't want to get yelled at. I mean, it's fucked up. And I think it's so important to grieve that. I, and clearly, like, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I have grieved about that. I've cried about that moment a lot. And I, now I can talk to you about it and I don't go. <gasps> so that to me is, is, a, is a signal that, hey, you're, you're, you're making some progress, bitch. No wonder I used to suffer... Um, Oh, okay, wait, I didn't read this part. How many time, How many thousands of times before I had unconsciously slipped into self-destruct mode? How many times had my relaxed enjoyment of a task been instantly ruptured by me repeating parental judgments that I wasn't doing it right? How many times had I dared not to attempt because I accepted their reverberating jibes that I was good for nothing? No wonder I used to suffer so much from performance anxiety. No wonder I could never find a moment's peace. I was dogged by the mental and emotional pain of this incessant self-abuse. My simplest thoughts and actions were constantly subjected to this cruel reincarnation of their harsh disapproval. Denial about my parents' abusiveness kept me blind to how their criticism had taken up a life of its own and momentum in me. Denial left me powerless to repudiate this poisonous indoctrination against myself. God, this guy knows a lot of words. I am inexpressibly grateful that working through my denial has led me to understand this dynamic. Me too, Daddy Walker. Me too. How blissfully, I ret- uh, how blissfully relieved I was to be able to renounce this unwelcome intrusion from the past. To release its accompanying fear that grieving and to get back to leisurely completing my meal. Had I not known how to deal with this nasty intrusion from the past, I probably would have rushed anxiously through my meal so that I could hurl myself into distracting activity for the rest of the day, as I had done so many times in the past. I believe many survivors are driven out of alignment with themselves by these types of emotional flashbacks and by byproducts of self-abusive self-talk. 
when we confront our denial and identify the details of how we were intimidated and controlled, we can begin to break the habit of mimicking our parents' contempt. Well, doesn't that sound like a fun fucking time? Woo! Yeah, a lot of times the voices in your head aren't yours. They're fucking moms or dads. And coming to terms with that, that's a that's a rocky road. But luckily I got a bunch of rocks in my hands and pockets that I hug. And I'm like, help me rocks down this rocky road. Help me stones be not a piece of shit. Help me be nicer to me. Oh, precious stones. Tell my mom to go fuck off because she's being a bully to me in my head right now. Are you not cured? Guys, come on, you're cured. Premature forgiveness and guilt. Oh, boy. This one's a rough one. Premature forgiveness is the decision to forgive our parents before we have thoroughly grasped the extent to which they harmed us. This decision generally brings progress and recovery to a screeching halt as it blocks the memory of a memory retrieval we need to set specific goals for our recovery. Premature forgiveness is false forgiveness because it is unsubstantiated by the recovery work that must take place for forgiveness to be emotionally genuine. (sighs) False forgiveness strands us in the belief that our poor self-image and inhibited self-expression are innate defects of character rather than products of poor parenting. So basically, if you're a victim, if you're always a victim, which, poof, especially in the past, up until like a year ago, I was like a mad victim. I was like, oh, no, poor me. Wah, wah, wah. Well, I have stomach issues and I have anxiety and I need Adderall because I have ADHD and I need to smoke weed because I'm like, you victim. Houston, we got a victim. I really victimized myself. God damn. And it felt great at the time because I was repeating being a victim of my parents. Bullshit. And then I'm like, you know what, bitch? I'm not going to do that anymore. And then I stopped. <laughs> it's a lot harder than that, but you, you get it. Uh, if uh, Premature forgiveness is commonly a knee-jerk reaction to the intense guilt that arises when we first challenge our denial about the past. Most of us were taught to believe that only the worst ingrates would question their parents' child-rearing performance. Many survivors from dysfunctional Jewish and Christian families were also brainwashed to believe that complaining about our parents is a sin. Well, that sucks. If that's a sin, then I'm going to hell, baby. Who's coming with me? Woo! That is, that it is a violation of the sacred fourth commandment. Honor thy father and mother. I was told over and over by the nuns that there was a special place in hell for those who had bad thoughts or feelings about their parents. God Damn, the one thing I thank my mom and dad for is not bringing me into religion. Holy shit. Can you imagine if I had all that shit going on that I had, and then I had some goddamn priest or a rabbi or fucking nun telling me that if I think bad about my parents, I'm a piece of shit? I wouldn't start a podcast. I wouldn't be here. I'd probably be living in Oklahoma, but not with the good people, with the bad people who hate themselves. Or any other state. Whatever. You know what I mean. Many adult children become very anxious when they first begin to speak the unidealized truth about their parents. Yeah, you could say that. A mere inference, inference that our parents were derelict in their duty to us can make us feel as if we are about to be annihilated by the wrath of God. <sighs> and it just makes me all the times that I like if anybody ever said anything bad about my mother up for my whole life. Corinne said this to me. I mean, if anybody ever said, hey, She's kind of being a dick. I'd be like, what'd you fucking say? Like, I would go off on them. That's how much denial I was in. 
not only that she that I didn't get what I needed and there there was abusive behavior going on and neglect, but you I couldn't believe I wouldn't allow myself to believe anything other than mommy's the best person in the whole world. And no one's the best person in the whole world. Except yeah. I believe the fourth commandment has been handed down to us in very repressive all or nothing way. It is a travesty of judo Christian mores that the commandment to honor one's mother and father is so commonly distorted into an unprotesting acceptance of unacceptable behavior. Tell them. It is as if the commandment really says honor thy father and mother no matter how they hurt you. <sighs> Wait, I need to heal this real quick. Okay. I wince inside at the image of many the many survivors who, out of blind allegiance to this commandment, leave their children in the care of grandparents who are still abusive. I have met a number of survivors who are so numbed by denial that they leave their children alone with the same parent who molested them in childhood. I believe the fourth commandment should be translated as honor thy father and mother if they honor you. Oh, I got goosebumps. That's the title of the goddamn episode. Let me let me fucking highlight that so I don't forget. Guys, we're learning. We're growing. God damn, that line is good. Woo, let's get healed. Premature forgiveness and the loss of basic human rights. This is a quote from Rollo May from Love and Will. Quote, so self-contradictory indeed has love become that some of those studying family life have concluded that love is simply the name of the way more powerful members of the family control other members. Love, Ronald Lang maintains, is often a cover for violence. That hurts. Premature forgiveness silences the inner child in much the same way that biological parents silence the real child. Many of us continue to forbid our inner children, and by extension ourselves, our most basic rights and needs. We routinely shame and hate our inner children whenever they complain feel emote or need anything but the bare necessities premature forgiveness preserves the ongoing re-traumatization and abandonment of our inner child Ooh, who's horny the human bill of rights of self-expression in appendix a identifies rights that are commonly denied to children and held exclusively by parents much of the trauma of childhood occurred when we were punished for our instinctive attempts to exercise these rights many of us still suffer unnecessary unnecessarily from abdicating such basic rights as the right to say no the right to be treated with respect and the right to have our own feelings opinions and preferences our health and future growth depends on us claiming and exercising these rights adult children can use the bill of rights as goals and guidelines for their efforts at recovery to successfully accomplish this, we must stop mimicking the forgiven parent parental criticisms that throttle our healthy self-interest whenever it arises. God, he words things so good. You might take a moment now to assess whether you still hold yourself in check with memorized parental censoring. Have you ever heard any of the following prohibitions echoed in your mind recently? Quote, how dare you say no to him? Don't be so selfish. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. You're so emotional. Oh, I say that to myself all the time. Who cares what you want? There are other people besides you, you know. That's fucking mean. Just be glad for what you have. Think of someone else for a change. Oh, God. The amount of times my parents still tell me to this day that I'm selfish. It fucking drives me goddamn nuts. You're sitting in the house that I bought. <laughs> I'm selfish? 
Yeah, I'm so selfish, huh? So selfish. Cool. Stop chattering away like that. What makes you think anyone cares about what you have to say? If any part of you winces or contracts at any of these phrases, you might invoke some healthy indignation about having been turned against yourself in this way. You can use the energy of your just anger to empower your efforts to acquire the basic human rights these statements unfairly violate. Premature forgiveness does not always spring merely from denial, fear, or guilt. This false form of forgiveness may also be motivated by the normal desire to get over being hurt and to be in, uh, be in loving relationship with family. As adults, we still have much of the children's needs to perceive ourselves as loved. The decision to forgive can therefore spring from the desire to get the past over with so that we can feel uncomfortable, or so that we can feel, excuse me, comfortable, Freudian slip, with our parents. That's definitely me. That's definitely me. And I've heard from my parents and other people and the voices in my head of like, well, just get over it, Christina. But you know what? Feelings aren't facts, motherfuckers, but they're clues. And if I talk about a memory or a moment and feelings come up, that's a goddamn clue that I need to excavate a little more. So why don't we get our construction equipment and excavate that shit? We can all too easily invoke false forgiveness because most of us are well-practiced at ignoring our unhealed childhood wounds to keep the illusion of a loving family intact. Ouchies, baby! Ouchies! Unfortunately, premature forgiveness stands us, strands us in relationship with our parents that, that are devoid of genuine warmth and intimacy as ever. Unless we work through the unresolved fear and hurt our parents caused us, we will always be uneasy around them and hold them at emotional distance. This is commonly the case, even when they have outgrown their abusive ways. Oh, that's one thing I say to my therapist all the time. Every time I, I didn't even notice this until I started meditating. But every time I am around my parents or my parents like come to visit or whatever, I am so fucking tense. I mean, no wonder they think I'm on drugs. Like I, I act like I, I don't even know what drug you take that makes you act like that. But like <laughs> Adderall, maybe. <laughs> um, but I just can't relax around them. I can't relax around them. Oh, maybe that's why my mom said my happiness is false. But I'm like, bitch, ask me if I'm happy instead of telling me I'm not. Sorry I called you a bitch. I don't mean that. I respect you. I just respect me more and my boundaries. Perfectionism is the self-destructive process of evaluating ourselves with godlike standards. Well, that hurt. Oliver Wendell Holmes warned against this when he said, quote, Young man, the secret of my success is that at an early age I discovered I was not God. Ooh, that one gave me the willies. The unreachable standards of perfectionism make us cruelly and unhelpfully self-critical. Yeah, no shit. Perpetual happiness and unfaltering peak performances are widespread perfectionistic ex expectations that torture most Americans. I'm glad he said that. Those of us who are encumbered with these two insidious, insidious, whatever, values are likely to judge all other states of being and performance as shamefully inadequate. Perfectionism is rife in industrial societies. It is woven into the fabric of American life as thoroughly as the mystic of baseball and apple pie. Yet, I, I recently viewed a television program in which third graders were asked to fill in the missing endings of various proverbs. Although, sounds like a shitty TV show. Although the audience howled in laughter, some looked as shocked as I felt when the child presented with, if, it, if you don't at first succeed, dot, 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 replied in total earnestness with, quote, you will be a loser and burden on society forever. <sighs> 
Bum, 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 bum. Maybe we should get a uh, fucking vaccine for per- 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 perfectionism, huh? There's no vaccine for that. You just have to work on yourself. I know. Perfectionism was probably born in the assembly line where workers were forced to be as emotionless, efficient, needless, and trouble-free as the machines they tend. Industrial societies, via the training ground of the family, create perfectionistic, soul-destroying expectations in almost everyone. Perfectionism can also manifest spontaneously in a child as a response to neglect. Hmm. Perfectionism is often the child's desperate attempt to win approval, uh, win parental love. If only he could faultlessly excel and be perfectly self-sufficient. And if only he never needed new clothes and never spilt his milk. And if only he didn't get sick and could stay out of mom's way, then maybe his parents would act lovingly to him. And if only her nose were a little smaller, and if only she was more like that perfect little girl on TV, and if only she could remember to keep that smile permanently plastered on her face, damn it, then maybe then her parents would love her. Well, fuck that shit. I gotta ring my gong. God damn it. That's what I did. I always had a smile on my face, and then I got into my late 20s, and I was like, I think this happiness is fake. And everyone's like, yeah, you kind of seem fake happy. I'm like, really? I do? And they're like, yeah, you've seemed fake happy for a while. I'm like, oh, you didn't say nothing? You're like, how are we going to tell you that? I'm like, that's true. I would have been mad. So I always had a smile on my face. I fucking, this is the lengths that I went to in a, in a, as a child to be perfect. I would punish myself and ground myself before my parents even knew I did anything. I would come to them and I would say, this is what I did. I'm going to go to my room now. What the fuck? (laughs) And one thing, oh my God, one thing that got me, because I started getting bad grades. Fifth grade is when my grades started to go down. I was getting straight A's and then I got, I went from straight A's to D's and F's, okay? And that was like the worst thing that could ever happen to me because I'm like, I'm a piece of shit. My parents should be ashamed of me. That's how I took that. And I remember my dad, no one fucking asked me what was going on with me or if I was okay. And I remember my dad would do this thing where, because he was in the, he was drafted in the Navy. So maybe there was some military-esque type of raising that I experienced on his end. And he would say, I would be screaming at him, screaming at the top of my lungs. Not anything disrespectful, but I would be so upset. And then he goes, you don't like it? You're grounded for another week. And I would keep screaming and screaming because I was—I felt like I was getting stabbed. And he very gleefully was like, nope, okay, two more weeks. Three more, okay, yeah, three more weeks. And he wouldn't just fucking hug me. <sighs> Needed a hug. Ooh, I got a hug, I'm healed. My parents use their children's innocent mistakes. Many parents use their children's innocent mistakes and harmless flaws as an excuse to scapegoat them. They regularly vent their unhappiness and frustration on their children and then blame them for their own incapacity to love. Who could love a child like that? I mean, no one said that to me. That's good. Some blame their children for everything that goes wrong in their lives. Quote, I've given up my life for you. This is how you repay me? It's a crying shame. You children have absolutely ruined my life. You are sending me to an early grave. I did hear that. If I hadn't had you, I could have fill in the blank. More money, a happier life? Yeah, you would have been a lot happier, huh? That's good. Well, I wish I wasn't born either. I didn't agree to this. Thank you. Don't kill yourself, guys. It is easy for parents to convince their offspring that they should be punished for not being perfect. 
Parents are virtual gods to their children with absolute power over them. They can thoroughly brainwash their children into believing that even the cruelest punishment is for their own good. Alice Miller has written a potent description of this process in her denial-shattering book, For Your Own Good. Many dysfunctional families are like mini cults. (laughs) Yep. The parents inculcate the children with their beliefs and values when they are completely impressionable. Thereafter, they harshly punish any deviation in thinking or behaving. Sounds like a cult to me. If it sounds like a cult, smells like a cult, looks like a cult. Houston, it's a fucking cult. Ooh, I got it right. Many adult children are so indoctrined in in their cult's way of thinking and behaving that they never break free and claim their own unique individuality. Although they may move out of the family compound... Jeez. They maintain a lifelong allegiance to their cult, no matter how hostile its leaders are to their well-being. Yep, that's why when I blocked my parents, I was like, well, this is the scariest fucking thing I've ever done in my goddamn life. And I've done a lot of scary shit. I almost died a bunch of times, but this is definitely the scariest. Because you feel like you're leaving your... I felt like I was putting my daughter out on the streets. Over and over, I see adult children in protracted subservience to parents who treat them with abject disrespect who revile them in ways that they would not tolerate for a moment from anyone else. One of my greatest pet peeves in this archetypal movie scene in which the hero pompously responds to a question about his decision or choice with, because my father did it that way. That's why. He got triggered. Invariably, this trenchantly clinches his case and all the other characters defer in obvious respect. I hope that someday... Someone will make a movie with a new document for this scene. If I was directing it, I would instruct the center, central character to rebut his blind obedience with something like, quote, if your father ate cow pie sandwiches, would we have to eat them too? Oh, God. Adult children who prematurely forgive their parents may never discover that they were bullied into perfectionism. Unrealistic values and unattainable goals may needle them incessantly, turning their psyches into an internal bed of nails. Woo! Then we are heavily afflicted by perfectionism. When we are heavily afflicted by perfectionism, we are so terrified of making mistakes that we never attempt anything new. We forget that life is replete with exciting opportunities. That's basically depression. Our wonderful gift of free will is reduced to selecting different ways of picking on ourselves. A tiny pimple relentlessly picked becomes a large infected wound. Perfectionism turns some of us into constipated grammarians. Shit, I don't know what that word means. I'll look that up later. We become tentative about everything we say. Often we guard against our thoughts lest they be improper. At our worst... We even become guilty and penitent about our dreams. I was once the type of smug, self-identified perfectionist who paid a great deal of lip service to challenging this destructive habit. I customarily minimized the emasculating effects that perfectionism had on my life. Ooh, emasculating. I never thought of that. I coyly labeled myself perfectionist, but I usually displayed a sly grin that clearly said I was secretly proud of this dysfunction. Well, that was me too. When I think about it now, I was somewhat like the person who wears the T-shirt that says, I don't have a drinking problem. I drink. I press out. I fall down. No problem. (laughs) That's a T-shirt. Oh, God, that should be a T-shirt. 
If well, that's true. You know, some people have like these like decorative things around their house with sayings on them, and it's like I haven't had my Valium yet. Don't talk to me. And you're like Va- Valium. Wait, huh? You got to go to a doctor, like a therapist. If I had worn a commensurate version of this T-shirt, it would have read, I don't have a perfectionism problem. I strive to be perfect. I drive myself relentlessly. I fall into self-loathing. No problem. Perfectionism kills self-esteem as phoniness kills love. Ooh, I like that. We're going over an hour and you could suck my balls. I don't care. Children of dysfunctional families are commonly born into terrible loneliness. Children who are supposed to be seen and not heard cannot help but suffer from overwhelming feelings of alienation and rejection. Many survivors who were silenced by the no-talk rule in childhood continue to suffer the same kind of mute loneliness in adulthood. They have yet to learn that real connection and belonging comes from people talking uninhibitedly together. Perfectionism intensifies the silencing isolating effect of the no talk rule many of us are unable to express anything about ourselves that is not 110 percent shiny that hurt we are so afraid of being seen as less than perfect that there is little that we feel safe to share until i was almost 30 my conversations seldom included anything but joke telling and sports talk (laughs) i'm just thinking of all the guys i know that only talk about sports This superficiality made me feel perpetually lonely, even though I was popular whenever I stayed anywhere long enough to make an acquaintance. When, uh, okay, let's go, let's skip a little bit. Wait, how much time do we have? Oh, no, I'll read the whole thing. Uh, dysfunctional parents customarily attack and belittle their children's natural inclination to be enthusiastically (sighs) self-expressive. Repeat that 20 times and then tattooed on your goddamn forehead. One of my parents' implicit rules was that I was not allowed to express express the slightest hint of pride in myself. That's so sad. That's so sad. That was not a rule in my house, thankfully. At the same time, one of their favorite uh, deprecations was, quote, don't you have anything, any pride in yourself? This kind of double blind is very typical of the dysfunctional family. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Whenever I forgot my parents' unstated rule and intimidated and intimidated that I might have said or done something worthwhile. I was belittled. Get off your high horse or I'll knock you off was a common refrain of my childhood. This was particularly true when I expressed a personal opinion. My mother was fond of scornfully greeting my views with phrases like, shh, everyone, everybody listen to Mr. High and Mighty or you're entitled to your own opinion even if it stinks. (laughs) That's a fucking cunt. Or... Your taste is all in your mouth. Rude-ass motherfuckers, man. Only when we fully express ourselves can we know that we are truly appreciated by others. Oh, yeah, that's true. Only through full self-disclosure can we discover that we are lovable in all aspects of ourselves. Much loneliness is healed through open and uncensored communication. And that's what I hope to do with the voices in our heads. To the extent that I can share my experience with you, to the extent... Do I feel received and loved by you? Self-expression and self-esteem are interdependent. The intimacy born out of honest sharing makes us feel good about ourselves and in turn encourages us to be increasingly forthright. In the words of Merle Shane, quote, friends are people who help you be more yourself, more the person you are intended to be. Oh, that's really beautiful and true. That's true. And if, if your friends don't make you feel like that, guys, Good new friends. Sorry. 
but it's true. I ha- I stopped. To- I have the friends that are not in my life anymore because they didn't make me feel like I could be myself because they judged me or yelled at me or whatever the fuck at me. And I'm like, wait, I don't have to take this shit. Sick. Better late than never to learn it. Parents who encourage their children's talkativeness nurture uh, nurture their self esteem. Parents who belittle their children into taciturnity supplant their life uh, supplant 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 sure supplant their self esteem with perfectionism. Self esteem cannot be reclaimed while perfectionism prevails. Self esteem is in many ways the opposite of perfectionism. Ooh, good one. Real self-esteem does not dissolve because of a blemish or a dropped dish or a dateless Saturday night. Real self-esteem does not instantly evaporate when we feel sad, mad, bad, or lonely. Our self-esteem is as solid as our ability to accept and respect ourselves in all circumstances, health and sickness, success and failure, togetherness and solitude, happiness and sorrow, enthusiasm and depression. As Oscar Wilde said, quote, it is not the perfect, but the imperfect that is in need of our love. <sighs> so many good quotes. When perfectionism keeps us from communicating about our troubles, we never learn the liberating secret that everyone has their fair or unfair share of pain. We are never soothed by the healing compassion that spontaneously arises between people who communicate and commiserate. Commiseration is the old age human process, barely extant in our culture, of resolving our hurts and frustrations through talking about them. Commiseration adds depth and juice to intimacy in a way that nothing else can. Ew, I should, that's why I'm doing this podcast, y'all. Our need for our own and others' love and support is greatest when we are in pain and struggling with our limitations. How sad and unnecessary that many of us still hide in the isolation of our rooms when we are hurting. As loveless and uncared for as we were in our family homes. Oh boy, I gotta. God damn, where's my fucking fart machine? I gotta. <laughs> oh, it's so sad and true. It's so sad and true. You know what I mean? It's so sad and true. Maybe you should just rename this book Sad and True. Oh God. Our need for our own and others' love. Okay, how un- blah, 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 blah. when we do, it is as if our parents are once again lacerating our self-esteem by banishing us from their presence until we wipe that look off of our face. All babies are born with the full capacity for self-esteem. Woohoo! Self-esteem grows and unfolds throughout their lives when their expressiveness is welcomed. Expressiveness of any kind is welcomed. So if we couldn't express negative feelings, self-esteem is going to be a bunch of... I have seen this over and over in non-industrialized countries. Children's speech is routinely welcomed in these cultures, and they typically mature into adults who are confident, warm, emotionally whole, and fully self-expressive. You know, like the opposite of the terrorists that stormed the Capitol? Huh, makes you think, doesn't it? The self-esteem of the average member of these cultures is dramatically greater than than that of ours until we learn to love ourselves during the less than perfect times our love for others is superficial and over conditional states of being that we hate in ourselves are hard to accept in others oof that's a tough pill but true tough pills the truth 
Perfectionism further alienates us from others by making us either overtly self-critical or conspicuously tight-lipped about our troubles. Ain't going to find tight-lipped here. Oh, yep, 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 all goddamn day. Both behaviors broadcast an implicit warning to others that they should be careful about what they disclose to us. And even if we pretend to ourselves or others that we are non-judgmental, unrenounced perfectionistic standards typically make us feel distanced, guarded, and unsafe in company. <sighs> Perfectionism causes us endless painful fantasies that others find us as wanting as we do and deprive us of the irreplaceable pleasure of fully being ourselves in company. Perfectionism also prevents us from letting in the love of others, no matter how abundant and genuine it is. When we are preoccupied with our deficiencies, we are often untouched by the nurturance others offer us. How tragic that so many of us are convinced we only deserve to be loved when we are happy or excelling. Perhaps this verse from poet Mary Oliver will encourage us to renounce our perfectionism. Quote, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Oh, that's goddamn gorgeous. Let that love be yourself. Self-love is a natural, healthy human condition that does not have to deteriorate into the overcompensation of egotism. Let us exchange self-rejection and the rejection of the perfectionism that was foisted on us when we were too young to ward it off. Nobody can be happy and at their peak all of the time. All good things come and go. Change is the only absolute in life as mystic poet Ghalib knew, quote, the road of change is before us, is before you always. The only line stitching this world's scattered parts. As appalling and irrefutable as it may, uh, it may sound on first hearing, be all you can be is an onerous philosophy when all means only the best and the most. Be all you can be is an insidious snare that traps us in workaholism and mercilessness perfectionism. Psychoanalyst Theodore Rubin elaborates on this, quote, We must guard zealously against the need for highs and must be very wary of success for its own naked sake. Addiction to success inevitably leads to profound self-hate and depression. Like any addiction, success too often becomes an inner demand on self for what have you done lately. As each success becomes a coercion for still more successes. Ooh, success. What a drug. Woman or man is not, or they or them. People was not created to become the ultimate machine. We owe it to ourselves to resist the pressure to become super productive, maintenance-less androids. Man, he writes words that were... He knew it's going. He's going. Christine Hutchinson isn't going to read this book one day, and I know she can't read out loud that well. But it's going to be challenging. I'm like, touche, Pete, touche. There are many worthwhile levels of performance that are less than be all you can be. One of the most exalted of these is the delightful, low key, relaxed state of just being. Perhaps the following passage will help us just say no to the drug of unnecessary hustle and bustle. Quote. Every day is replete with opportunities to give to myself. Every bit of time wasted is a chance to throw off. 
I don't know this word, the hegemony of modernities, be all and end all productivity. Every project that takes too long, every task that takes more effort than planned, every job that's slowed by mistakes is a wondrous opportunity to practice patience and self-forgiveness. I read that real slow to like go along with the theme. Did you like it? Thank y'all. Uh, perfectionism frequently produces a never-ending fruitless search for Mr. or Miss Perfect. It tends to rise up with great force in the early stages of romantic love. Survivors who have not renounced perfectionism typically over-censor their expressiveness when they first fall in love. Mm, do that. They strive to project impeccable images to each other out of fear that anything less will lead to a repetition of earlier abandonments. Ooh, that hurt. Making a good impression often means hiding any vital parts of oneself. Self-censorship is an exhausting task. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> Sooner or later, flaws emerge out of the romanticized haze. When this happens, the two people who have only seen each other's unblemished masks over a long period of time, the disillusionment can be devastating. False love, or especially if you're like me and you make a make a person that's kind of shitty to you out to be not shitty to you, and then you're like, well, if I just squint my eyes real hard, all I see is your good parts, so you're like a, the most amazing man I've ever met. And then when you realize that it was all an illusion created by yourself, you're like, well, fuck me, I gotta be alone. False love based on mirages of perfection often dissolves suddenly and dramatically. If this happens enough times, we may give up entirely on love. Some survivors are so hamstrung by perfectionism that they never look for love at all because they don't see the ideal features of an actor or model when they look into the mirror. They are sure they will be rejected if they approach someone to whom they are attracted. For most of my adolescence, I was terrified at the thought of interacting with the girls in my school. Whenever I saw a girl in my classroom approaching me from a distance, I quickly turned the circle and block in the other direction, ran uh, rather than face her in a meeting I was sure would be humiliating. My self-worth and self-expression had been so decimated in my family that I knew I would only make a fool of myself. And see, when I say you go one way or the other with the childhood shit... I mean, I don't know this per I don't know the author, Peter Walker, but it seems like he's a nice guy. You know what I mean? So you either turn into a nice person or a piece of shit. But either way, you can fix it. Okay. Un I unconsciously feared that anything I might say to engage or impress her would be greeted with the same kind of sarcasm it received at home. It was as if my subconscious re uh, rewrote the song, Only Fools Fall in Love, as Only Fools Open Their Mouths. I was a very graceful, it was a very graceful day in my late 20s when I finally opened to my grief and discovered that my sense of loneliness had shifted very little since I escaped my desolate home. I still felt as basically lonely as I had in adolescence, even though I had finally had a girlfriend and the apparent approval of everyone in my immediate circle. I experienced little ease with anyone. I still habitually retreated to the cloister of my room whenever I had a feeling that was too overwhelming to hide behind. Uh, my confident per facade in a life altering moment of realization. I decided that this was all my Mr. Perfect act could get me. I might as well stop pretending as expeditiously as I could. I jettisoned my unrewarding song and dance and set my intention to be more authentic. As I feared, many of my old friends slipped away. Well, they weren't your good friends. I oh, to begin with. So it doesn't matter. 
But beyond my greatest hope, a few friends remained and enthusiastically welcomed my new authenticity. Before long, I felt cared for for the first time in my life. Oh, so nice. As I become ever more comfortable with authenticity and fucking great writer, my sense of belonging and being at home in my community and the world increases. With 20 years of practice, I am now convinced that nothing actualizes love and appreciation more potently than mutual, unrestricted self-revelation. And that's what we're doing now. I would trade a room full of fair-weather friends for one of my intimates with whom I now have this precious communion. <sighs> Idiot savants and the emotional kind. Wait, let me make sure I... Okay, yeah, just one more page. Many of us have point up many of us have poignant feeling of sympathy for the idiot savant and his astounding but pathetic brilliance in the narrow area of mental intelligence. I believe that such moments at such moments we are sometimes vicariously empathizing for ourselves and our parallel impoverishment in parallel I'm gonna say it again because I'm gonna pregnancy makes perfect. Our parallel impoverishment. Woo! Good for me. In a narrow aspect of emotional being. After all, being happy is one is the one emotional response that is universally valued in our culture. And its importance is so prized that we are guaranteed a right to pursue it in our constitution. That gave me goosebumps. And by God, we pursue it. Stalking happiness with great fury and ruthlessness, ruthless abandon, often exterminating any other emotion that threatens to succeed its dominance in our immediate experience. Recognition for the idiot savant rests almost exclusively on his perfect mastery of numbers, just as self-esteem for the average American depends heavily on his ability to appear and act perfectly happy. For many of us, being happy has come to mean feeling good, which in turn means refusing to feel bad. Society provides us, those of us who are desperate to feel happy and good, with innumerable substances like weed and activities like my VR headset to right any faltering in our illusion of perfect well-being. Many people sacrifice vital aspects of their lives and seriously injure themselves in the pursuit of happiness. Some sacrifice every tomorrow's well-being to a certain hangover by binging on food, drugs, or alcohol in order to feel good the night before. Some pawn their financial security to the monetary exhilaration of impulse buying in exchange for constant anxiety about unpayable debts. Others risk destroying the love they have with their mates for a fast fix of feeling good in an affair. In our society, perfectionism manifests on the emotional plane as perpetually displaying preferred feelings. If we are to reclaim our healthy, fully feeling human nature, we must renounce our unholy allegiance to the belief that mental health means being happy all the time. Okay, you're free, guys. You're free. You're free to go. We must take that dangerous little yellow button with simplistic smiles off our lapels and avoid people who try to fix our moods with the trite advice of the saccharine pop tune, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> As my perfectionism wanes and becomes a mere shadow of its former self, I sometimes reverberate delightfully with this poem from Kabir. The blue skies open further and further, and the daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done 
to myself fades and a million suns come forward with light. A galaxy of richness awaits those who rescue themselves from emotional bankruptcy of being fixated on a singular band of the emotional spectrum. Luxuriating in the full emotional spectrum of human feeling is the theme of the next chapter. I mean, applause break for Pete. Dig your pain out of that well walker, huh? That was good. That was really good. I feel healed. Wait, hold on. Now I feel healed. Oh, it's Kevin's birthday. I'm recording this the night before it comes out. Sorry, Mike. It's Kevin's birthday today. And I've been crying and crying and laughing and crying and we cry some more and then we get over it. So I hope that I hope that helped you. It certainly fucking helped me. And you know, to, it's a we've experienced. If you are an American, we've experienced some some of the ugliest days. Oh God, just so ugly. But um, love does always win, so that's exciting. And um, you need to create a heavenly safe space inside yourself. Okay, and just be mindful of how much news you consume and how much social media or comparing that you do in your head. And be mindful of the voices in your fucking head. Okay, because pretty soon you're going to take your headphones off. Or you're going to press pause or this, this podcast episode is going to start stop. And, you know, those voices in your head might be like, oh, so anyway, you're a fat bitch. And you go, no, 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 I'm not a fat bitch. I am amazing. It's not that easy, but you get you get the idea. Um, the thing I wanted to say at the end was that I have available for purchase. So if you're unemployed, please do not be like, well, I can't buy anything right now. I'm, I'm sorry if you're experiencing emotional or uh, financial burdens. But because um, I never like to be like, buy my shit at a time when the economy is tanking. But uh, if you have money to buy shit, I have three notebooks. There are very limited quantities on my website. It's ChristinaHutchinson.com. There's three notebooks with covers designed by uh, my gal Kylie. Um, there are there's one of me in a cup of tea. I really love that one. And then one of me holding rocks. And then I have a sticky um, a bo- notebook with the design on the front that's a bunch of sticky notes of notes that I write to myself. And the centered one is work harder, you lazy fat fuck. And the cool thing about that notebook is um, I had some of my closest friends write notes that they would write to themselves in their own handwriting that are on the cover of this book. I love that part. But the other part that I love is there is a chip inserted in every one of these books. And it's not to track like what you buy and what you do or anything like that. It's not tracking shit. (laughs) But it's basically like when you hold your camera camera over a menu code and then it brings up the menu in your phone. It's kind of like that. It'll bring you to any link. But the link that it's going to bring you to is a hidden link on my website with a bunch of journal prompts of things that have really helped me um, things that I've dissected about myself or the questions that I've asked myself that have really helped aid progress or really helped me take tally of my morals and values and take tally of my friendships and my relationships and take tally of my tits. You know, you gotta take tally of them sometimes. Um, so yeah, they're available. There's 20 bucks on my website. I love you. I love you so much. Thank you for ed- to everybody who sent me a voice memo. They are going to be they're either going to be on this episode or uh, not obviously not this episode not, not this episode but I want to I want to collect more they're really good and I got a lot of them and some of them are of different categories so I kind of want to categorize them all together so if you uh, have an urge maybe something in this episode inspired you the voices in our heads podcast at gmail.com you could send me a voice memo from your phone take it from your phone and just email it to me if you can keep it 30 to 45 seconds that would be sick but you know sometimes you can't and that's fine so, um, yeah. Congrats on surviving, guys. I love you. You got this. Love will win. 
and I'll talk to you next Wednesday. Try!